the Bible, please open up to the book of Colossians. It's been a few weeks since we've been there. Chapter 3, page 984 in your ESV Pew Bibles. And we're going to look at the first four verses. I saw him coming. I didn't know he was going to fall, but I just saw him running down. All right. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray once again that you would indeed, O Lord, direct our minds heavenward now. Help us to hear from you, Father God. Speak to us through the ministry of your word. I pray for myself that you, O Lord, would sanctify me, sanctify my lips, my heart, and my mind, and overshadow and empower me to preach forth your word. I pray, Father, that you would uh, receive the glory and that people would not hear Bob Janzera, but they would hear from you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you thinking about right now? That's a question, right? What thoughts were going through your head as I was praying? What thoughts are going through your head now as I'm talking? What were you thinking about when we were singing? What do you think about uh, when you were driving here? What are you thinking about when you lay in bed in the morning? What do you think about when you eat breakfast? What do you think about when you eat dinner? What do you think about when you're busy? What do you think about when you're not busy? I can go down this litany of questions, but our thoughts can be quite scattered and we're not always thinking about what we're doing at the moment. I know many times that although I may be here and singing, my thought can be somewhere entirely different. You see, the Bible tells us that we are made in God's image. We know that, right? As human beings, we are made in the image of God and that's pretty evident. We are complex creatures, both physically and spiritually. We are distinct from the lower species on the planet. In fact, we are superior to other species on the planet. We can read and write and speak in complex, various languages. We can emote in very expressive ways. And more importantly, we are spiritual beings. We were created to worship God and have a relationship with him. But obviously, sin came in and destroyed that. But another important factor that distinguishes us as human beings is our ability to think, our ability to ponder, to ruminate, to reason. The faculty of our minds are unique and distinguish us from the lower forms of life as well. And our thought life can be more complex than actually the way we live our lives. Thoughts are very deep. Who knows the mind of a man except himself, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. One's thoughts are very deep, and we don't know what someone is thinking unless they choose to reveal it to us, right? And in the same way, we understand that our minds and thoughts can go in different directions. 
We can fantasize and imagine living in such a way that it's not even real. Our fantasies and imaginations even find us when we dream at night, right? We wake up and have dreams, and those dreams are really the hidden thoughts of our subconscious. Whatever the fears or fantasies that we have, they come to alert us at night in the form of dreams. And, and so many people, well, what does it mean? And they look up books of interpretations. It really is just your own thoughts deep within your soul that in the busyness of life you don't even think about, but they're there. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinketh, so he is. The mind is the control center of our being. How we think and what our mind is preoccupied with and what we are focused on will determine the outcome and the course of our life. It will will shape how we interpret reality around us. Now, how are our minds shaped? Well, when you're born and you come into this world, you're a blank slate, aren't you? It's like a blank canvas. You're born, you come into this world, you know nothing. You're a little infant, Google gaga. You're taught everything from the moment you're born, you learn from your environment. You learn in your home, you learn in the world you live in, at school, you absorb what you see and perceive and what you hear. And that shapes and molds how your mind operates. Culture has a big impact on it. That's why the way some people think here in America, in Western society, is very much different the way a child grows up thinking in, let's say, Asia or China or India or South America, for that matter, because the culture impacts how you think as well. Today, our passage exhorts us to be conscious about how we think and use our minds. What does it say here? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. And so that makes up the exhortation here as we move into the next section of Colossians in the next chapter. Now, I want you to realize something, that this is an exhortation. It's, a, it's telling us that we must do this. We're in the imperative now. And so in these imperatives, we look back at the indicatives, and that, as we'll see, is rooted in our relationship to Christ. All of Colossians talks about how we are in Christ. But I want you to also see this exhortation within the larger framework and context, starting from chapter 216 down to chapter 317. In chapter 2.16, what did Paul say? Let no one pass judgment on you. And he goes on about the legalists, the, 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 the Colossian heresy, the Colossian philosophy that had persuaded and, and propagated a doctrine to take people captive in following a legalistic form of religion in terms of pleasing God and living out a holy life. It was about do's and don'ts and, and about asceticism and afflicting their flesh and trying to live in such a way of depriving themselves that they thought they would please God, but it wasn't rooted in Christ. It was all about human energy and human works and and human traditions. And it was rooted in the elemental spirits of the world, demonic forces. In contrast to the Colossian philosophy, the heresy that's undermining true biblical Christianity... Paul presents a different approach. And the approach to religion is not 
a matter of do's and don'ts, but it begins with your mind and your heart. It begins with the inner man. It begins with who you are inside. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are and how you think and where you fix and set your heart and mind in this life. It's about being in Christ. You see, apart from being in Christ, pleasing God is impossible. Getting right with God is impossible. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ, through a relationship with him, through being born of the Spirit. And so in chapter 3, we're introduced to a new mindset, a mindset that's distinguished from the worldly religions that tell you you do this and you do that and you don't touch this, don't touch that, don't eat this, don't eat that, and you'll be okay. The shift now, the paradigm shift is about understanding who we are in Christ and thinking in a pattern that reflects that. How does that follow? Well, in vert chapter five, uh, uh, vert chapter three, five through seventeen, breaks it up into two different passages. Right, and we're going to look at this a little more closely in a minute. Verse five: Put to death what is earthly in you. And then in verse twelve: Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And it goes on to list. There's a put, taking off and a putting on, a putting to death and a new life. And this is all rooted in the death and resurrection of Christ being worked out in our lives. So in today's passage, we want to look at two things. We want to look at the necessity and the basis of this new life in Christ is being joined to him by faith. And then secondly, the outcome of that is having a godly mindset. So let's look first at this basis of a heavenly mindset. Notice in verse 1, it says, if then you've been raised with Christ. The conditional clause, if. The assumption is that you have been risen with Christ, that you've been born of the Spirit, that you are a new creation in Christ. But the condition is if. Not everybody who is reading this letter in the church of Colossae has been born again. And certainly not everyone who's sitting here today has been born again. Just because you go to church and you know the Christian religion does not mean you're born of the Spirit. Paul preaches that till he's blue in the face because he was 37 years old when God saved him and he was an established member of a church. Being born of the Spirit is something when God raises you from the spiritual dead. And so what we're talking about is that there must be a change within Now notice it says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. But then look at verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So there is a death and there is a life. There is a death that took place and there is a resurrection took place. And we, we spoke a little bit about this last week and it was symbolized in baptism. And Taylor, Frank and Krista are here and they experienced that where the actual symbolic sign of baptism, of going under the water, symbolizing dying with Christ and coming up out of the water, being raised to new life. The old is gone, the new has come. And so we see that that has a big part in our identity with Jesus. Colossians 2, Galatians 2.20, if you follow with me, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what new life is about. That's what the Christian life is, is that we have died with Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, it's not business as usual. It's not, I'm just going to say a sinner's prayer and I'm good and I'm just going to live the way I always lived. Is there a fundamental change from before you came to know Jesus to after? If there's no difference, if it's just the blur from before Christ to after Christ, then I, I suggest you haven't been converted. You haven't been born again. There is a transformation, a radical change take place. You're dead and you're alive. Living people and dead people look very different. They have different appearances. They, a dead person can't do nothing. A alive person lives and breathes and moves about. You must be born again. Jesus says you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. The death, dying with Christ, points to the definitive and irreversible split with the old life we once were immersed in. And on the other hand, being raised with Christ points to a new status. And with that new status comes a new ethic, And with that new ethic comes a new lifestyle. There's a change. And so thus the starting point is, if you have been raised with Christ, and the question is, have you been raised with Christ? Have you experienced a spiritual rebirth? Have you experienced a spiritual resurrection? Not only that, but I want you to see something more importantly, what Paul says Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Ponder that for a moment. What does that mean that our life is hidden with Christ in God? Now, we think about the idea of being hidden. We think of being secure and safe, right? To be hidden is to be secure and safe. Now, if you want to find out anything about anyone... You can go on google.com, you could type in someone's name or the city they live in, and you will find enough information about that person that, that can help you determine who they are. Now, some people have a bigger digital footprint than other people. I have a tremendous digital footprint. I'm a pastor of a church, I'm a real estate agent on the side. My footprint is huge. You want to find me, it's very easy to. Some people have a minuscule footprint. You can't find anything about them because they have no social media. They do not have any website that's connected with them, and, and you, they're basically hidden, right? There's, there have been certain individuals I've tried to research on the Internet, and I can't find any information about them. They're scrubbed. Some, you, there's actually companies you can hire that will scrub all your info off the Internet so you could be completely hidden from knowledge, Our lives are hidden with Christ. And we're hidden in the sense that not everybody knows who we are. Who are we? Well, that's exactly the question. We have identities that we are the children of God. And when he comes again at the second coming at his appearance, then it will be known who we are. Notice what it says here. Your lives 
are hidden with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Not everybody knows who we are right now. To the world, we're a bunch of fools. To the world, they look at Christians and say, oh, they're just some dumb you know, old-fashioned rubes who believe in an ancient book and some God who was crucified and risen from the dead. They deprive themselves of the pleasures of life and they think that their ethics are superior to ours and they want to judge us all the time. Let us live our lives free, enjoy life. Great lie, isn't it? Satan has deceived many in the world. But we know the truth and the truth has set us free. And while the world may see us this way right now, and we are disguised in a sense, right? We're disguised because we're still clothed in the flesh. The truth is that one day it will be known who we are. We will appear with him in glory. John says it this way in 1 John 3, 2-3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the hope we have. Not everything is going to be as it is today one day. Well, that's true. When you're children, you think your whole life revolves around your childlike world. And then you're an adult one day and that childlike world is gone and you live in an adult world and everything centers around a certain way. And then you're a senior citizen one day and your life changes again. Things change in life and things will change unalterably and eternally one day for every human being here. Every human being has an eternal destiny that is unalterable and unchangeable. You will either dwell in heaven with God forever or you will burn in hell forever. I read an interesting piece this week and I take things like this with a grain of salt but at the same time, I think there's a level of truth and it was a piece about a Catholic priest who claims he died, he had a heart attack and then he went to hell and he saw hell for what it was and God allowed him to come back to this world and, and to tell everybody how horrible hell is and he gave very descriptive uh, uh, um, a very descriptive picture of what took place there he, he talked about deformed human beings walking around like dogs and demons uh, guiding them on leashes as demons control them and it was it was a quite horrific picture and I said well one of two things either the guy's lying which can be true or he's not lying And I said to myself, even if he's lying, that picture he's painting is not even a tenth of how bad it really is. And I thought it was good for me to read. It was sober for me to read because what it told me was this. His description was horrific, but hell will be much worse than that. If only we could get a sense of what hell is like it would scare the hell out of us at the same time for those who are in Christ our hope is based on not 
judgment, but our hope is based on the gift of life. It's based on the resurrection. It's based on glory. If you are indeed raised from the dead, if you are in Christ, then you have this hope. If you're not raised in Christ, you don't have this hope. Our future glory right now is concealed, but one day will be revealed. Is it obscured by our physical body and our remaining sinful nature? But one day, we will come out of hiding. One day, everyone will know who we are. Notice what verse 4 says. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Christ, who is your life. That says it all right there. The whole essence of the Christian ethic is about Christ. Christ, who is your life. What Paul is basically saying here is that for the Christian, Christ is at the center. Christ is everything. Christ is the source of our power. Christ is the source of our joy. Christ is the source of our hope. Christ is the source of our strength. He's the source of our ability to live out this Christian ethic. It's one thing to say, I'm Christ-centered. That's a cool slogan. But to be Christ-centered, the reality and essence of that is far different. In fact, to be Christ-centered is what it means to be hidden in Christ. Listen to what Sam Storms comments. He says, Paul's use of the word hidden is somewhat analogous to what we can and cannot see in a flower. The root system is concealed beneath the surface of the earth. How it derives nutrients from the soil and contributes to the growth of the stem, the leaf, and the petal is unseen, being something of a mystery. But the beauty of the rose is for all to behold. Its color and fragrance are ever on display for the joy of all people. Likewise, the Christian whose strength and incentive and inner life are hidden from you, but whose kindness, faith, Perseverance and love are a perpetual witness to the glory of God's grace within. To be Christ-centered is not just a slogan. It is our life. It is who we are. Christ, who is your life. I'm convinced that not many people get this. And it's the distinguishing factor between intellectual Christianity and true Christianity. Or as Paul would say often, the head conversion and the heart conversion. Now that we established what it means to be in Christ, to be hidden in Christ, the Christ who is our life, to be raised with him and to be dead with him, now we look into this idea of therefore and the ethic and the, and the, the, the mindset that comes along with that, and that is to seek, your, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. So there are two parallel statements, and they both really are pointing us to the same thing. We should be seeking and setting on that which is above, not the things of this earth, where Christ is. This world, what exists here? Demons, the devil. Where is your focus? Now, 
Before I deconstruct this, I want us to first think about something. What do we mean by above and below? Are we talking merely spatial? Right? It's as if, you know, do we look up in the sky and look for Jesus in the sky? I mean, we know that he ascended upward and, you know, Mount Olives in Acts chapter 1. We know that that's a truth. But heaven is not a geospatial reality. I mean, if I just go up, eventually I'll go into outer space. And once I'm in outer space, there is no north, west, south, or east. It's just, you know, where, where is heaven? Heaven is not so much a geospatial location. It's a dimension. And it's a dimension that exists outside of the dimension of earth. And the dimension that exists in is not in a location It's right before us. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 that what prevents us from seeing the heavenly dimension or realm is there's a veil before our eyes. When the veil is lifted, you can see. Sometimes when people are dying, that veil is lifted before they die. You ever see when people are dying, they start seeing dead people. They start having conversations with dead people. The veil is lifted. There's, There's seeing into a dimension and realm that doesn't that we are inhibited from seeing. Our eyes and our mind are equipped to see things on the third dimension, this reality. But we do know one thing about the heavenly realm. It's where God is. The book of Revelation speaks about it. And Christ is at the right hand. Turn with me for a moment to Revelation chapter 5. Or rather, chapter 4, pardon me. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Revelation. And after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. And with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God and before the throne as it were a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind and the first living creature like a lion and the second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth creature like an eagle in flight and the four living creatures each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's the heavenly realm. 
a picture of it with metaphors to describe this, this amazing spectacle that John beheld and could not communicate in human words. Just as horrific as hell will be that words can't describe, heaven will be so beautiful that words can't describe. Only metaphors could be used. And so our hearts and minds, Paul is exhorting us to be focused on that, where God is. Be focused where Christ is seated at the right hand of power. It speaks of Christ's supremacy, his authority, his sovereignty, his omnipotence. We need to direct our minds and hearts in that direction. And so what we see here is that we're talking about a mindset. The seeking and the setting is not as if we have something to discover that hasn't been found. Christ is not lost. We were lost and he found us. We're not searching for a treasure that hasn't been discovered. No, we have already found it. To understand what it means to set your mind on things above, we must understand the word there in the original Greek and what it means. Philippians 2.5 gives us another way that same word is used. What does Paul say there in Philippians 2.5? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves. What is he talking about here? He's talking about that which is ours in Christ Jesus, the mind of Christ itself. Paul is speaking about a way of thinking, a mindset, an attitude, a disposition, a temperament. In other words, if you have been risen with Christ and Christ is seated in heaven, then think like Christ. See things the way Christ sees it. And have an attitude like Christ. Philippians 2 talks about humility. This is very challenging, isn't it? Because we do not always think like Christ. We don't always have a heavenly mindset. Now what this does not mean... It doesn't mean that we should withdraw from society, go live in the desert, and just read the Bible and pray all day long, 24-7, and don't work. Some have actually taken that text literally to mean that. Well, set my mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Let me just get out of society altogether, and I'll just read the Bible all day, and I'll pray all day, and I won't work, and I won't get married, and I won't have kids, and I won't have any possessions, I'll just live in the desert and I'll withdraw that. That's the basis of the monastic movement. We talked a little bit about that last week with the asceticism. That is exactly not what Paul is saying because he's, he's actually saying this in contrast to the way those people live. God wants us to live in this world and to live out a life. We're going to be active. You're going to work. You're going to have families. You're going to be dealing with unbelievers and pagans. And you're going to be dealing with opposition and hostility. And you're going to deal with temptations and tests and trials. And you're going to be pushed to your limits. And in the midst of that, God tells us, have a heavenly mindset. 
If you look at it just from a worldly perspective, and trust me, I know because I, this is a battle in my own mind. If you look at it just from a worldly view, you will fail. You will give up. If you look at it just from an earthly perspective, you will not make it. If you have a heavenly mindset, then we can look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who's gone before us, and pick up our cross and follow him. Not always easy, but through the power and strength of God, we will do. John Piper says this, be shaped in your way of thinking, your emotional life, your pattern of attitudes, your responses, your preferences, your preferences in people, entertainment, clothes, job, leisure. In this total set of your mind and heart, be formed by the realities that are above. The realities of God, Christ, seated at the right hand of God, and your true life hidden with Christ and God, and your death behind you, and the spectacular public appearance of Christ, and your appearing with him in glory. Let your way of seeing the world, thinking about the world, feeling about the world, be shaped and governed by these realities. That's what it means to be heavenly minded. Let these realities shape the way we perceive our attitudes, our preferences, our responses. What is it to be earthly minded? Paul says so in a few verses later, Colossians 3, 5 through 8. He says, put to death, therefore, what is what? Earthly in you. What is earthly in us? Sexual immorality. Impurity. Impurity means having a defiled mind. Impurity deals with the mind. It means your mind is defiled by darkness and ungodliness and and impure thoughts. Passion, that word, and I'm going to preach on this, given over to your emotions. Evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. That's what's earthly. Don't let your mind be in the gutter. Let your mind be heavenward. You see, our mindset is either being shaped by Christ or it's being shaped by the world and the flesh. It's one or the other. Sometimes it's a little bit of both, isn't it? So let's think about this. What shapes our mind? What do you meditate on? What do you think about? What molds your pattern of thinking? Well, it's what you absorb. It's what you what you hear, what you see, and what you absorb. So let's think about it. If the most of your day is spent absorbing from social media, if you're spending hours a day on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or Twitter, that's going to shape your mind. That's going to mold you. If you're, a, if you're absorbed into your work and all you do is work, that's going to absorb and shape the way you think about life. People's professions actually dictate how they view life, right? The music you listen to, the books you read, the hobbies you take up, all shape and mold the way you think. 
I used to think music wasn't important. But I've come to the conviction that, and, 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 and just recently, I kind of drifted from it, but I'm recently I'm back to a conviction that a lot of the worldly music, it, it just brings you down. It, it very subtly influences your thinking in a bad way. Think about how many hours throughout the day you were absorbed. What about your work environment? If you're in a work environment or a home environment or a a, a school environment that's toxic and you're surrounded by ungodly people, it's going to have an impact on the way you think and the way you act. The question is, what do we do about it? We must set our minds on things above. Set your mind on things above is an imperative. It's a command. It means that we can do something. Philippians 4, I think Paul gives a very clear instruction. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, is if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let that be your filter. Next time you're laying in bed or you're scrolling the internet, use that as your filter. Whatever show you're watching, if it doesn't match up, maybe it's time to cut it off because it means your mind is being polluted. I think that we have very polluted minds. I think our minds are very corrupted. I say this not in judgment. I could see it in myself. The influences of the world are very pervasive, especially with technology today. So how, how do we overcome this? It's a very easy solution. Romans 12, 2 tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we renew our minds? Through the washing and the water of the word of God. It is Christ who cleanses our minds and our hearts through his word. And it doesn't mean just reading the Bible or listening to the Bible on on your daily reading that we're doing right now. But it means being under the ministry of the word. It means means reading books about the Bible. It means reading articles that are Christ-centered. And that leads into seeking God. You see, when our minds are renewed, we're heavenly-minded then seeking comes easy. You see, the seeking and the searching has a definitive object. We're not seeking aimlessly, but we're seeking Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father. What does the Scripture tell us? Psalm 105.4 says, Seek the presence of the Lord continually. 1 Chronicles 16.11 says, Seek the Lord and his strength Seek his presence continually. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 1 here, it says, seek the things that are above. In the original Greek, it says, seek those things continually. Continue to do as you were doing. Seeking God is not something that stops. You seek God every day. Seeking God is not hoping to discover, like I said, what hasn't been found, but seeking literally his face, seeking his presence in our lives. 
It's a conscious choice to set our hearts and affections on Jesus. It's a conscious choice to enjoy him for all that he is, to seek him for strength to cope through a difficult day, to seek him to restrain us from our evil impulses, to seek him to save the lost, to seek him to show us his grace and favor. Again, John Piper says the seeking is the conscience effort to get through the natural means to God himself, to constantly set our minds towards God in all our experiences, to direct our minds and hearts towards him through the means of his revelation. That is what seeking God means. See, the question is, or the problem is, that we seek everything but God. There's a lot of alternatives to God that we seek. When you get sick, what's the first thing you do? Do you pray or do you seek the doctor? When you have a mental problem, what's the first thing you do? You seek the psychiatrist or the therapist or do you seek God? When you have a legal problem, what's the first thing you do? You seek an attorney to litigate or do you seek God? We don't seek God anymore. We see Google. Now, you laugh, but I got to tell you something. I was reading about this the other day. Did you know that, that artificial intelligence prepared and preached the first sermon ever to a, to a Jewish synagogue down in New York City? And after the sermon was complete, the rabbi told the, his synagogue, I didn't prepare the sermon. Artificial intelligence did. I'm just reading the notes. There is talk about a future cult revolving around artificial intelligence. You don't realize it, but we've all participated in this. How often do we search Google for all the answers? What are we doing? We're seeking. Seeking and searching are the same thing. A search engine is a seek engine. Instead of seeking God, we found an easier path with instant gratification. See, God doesn't answer everything instantly. It requires searching and studying and praying. Effort. And it's effort that we who are spiritually lazy do not want to do. It's so much easier to type a question on your phone and get instant answers. But that's shaping your mind. The world is changing very quickly. Are we changing with it? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There are two major obstacles I want to conclude to our seeking and searching God. One is the spiritually dulling activities of this life. When we don't seek God, it's because we're allowing something else to capture our imagination, something to capture our attention, and seeing the value and worth of Christ as all-sufficient has been diminished because we are dazzled by something else. The world is very impressive and dazzling. I went to Times Square the other day, and I've been there enough times I'm not impressed anymore. But to be around all that can be very uh, um, stimulating to the carnal nature. The world can be very appealing. And so we have to know what those things are that dull our love and adoration for Christ. The things that dull and blind us, and more importantly, our sin. 
When we're comfortable in our sin, it's very deceitful, and sin will do everything to separate us from God. Instead of seeking God, we run from God. See, that's what sin does. Sin doesn't draw you to seek him. Sin makes you run and hide because you know that sin is offensive to God. So as long as you hold on to your sin, you will not seek God. Secondly, pride. The greatest of all is pride. Psalm 10.4 says this, in the pride of his face, the wicked do not seek God. I think this is kind of simple, right? The proud doesn't think he needs God. The proud man, the proud person thinks that they're okay. Their sufficiency rests in their own abilities. They don't need the Lord in their lives, so they never seek him. They never set their minds on him because they are content to be the captain of their own ship and to manage the course of their life on their own. God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. Let me end on this verse. Hebrews eleven six says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. There's a reward for seeking God and setting your mind on things above. You will live a peaceful life, a joyful life, a content life, a life that is empowered to overcome sin and not be overcome by sin. A life in the light and not in darkness. There is great reward for seeking God. And on the other hand, a life that doesn't seek God, that's not grounded in faith in Christ, is a life of darkness, of misery, and emptiness. And so I call upon you today, do you really have faith and trust in Christ? Have you truly come to Christ for your eternal salvation? Do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Do you believe he's the Lord of all creation? And more importantly, have you humbled yourself and surrendered to him? You see, all of this here tells us something important. The seeking God, the setting our mind on things above is a conscious decision effort we make, but you can't do it unless you've come to Christ first. Some of us have not found Christ yet. We've heard it over and over, but we have not yet savored and fully understood who Jesus is. And so I call upon you. You say, well, Bob, how do I do it? Colossians 3.16, a few verses down, says very clearly, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Fill yourselves with his word. You cannot know God apart from his word. The more you know his word, the more you will know him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I... Father, we, we just humbly bow and acknowledge, O oh Lord, our total unworthiness before you today. We acknowledge that without you, we are, cannot do anything. And so we come to you, Jesus, confessing, Father, confessing, Lord, that we have not always set our minds above. We have not always sought you. And we ask you for forgiveness today. And we pray that today would be a day of renewal. Revive our hearts that we may be transformed by the renewing of our minds 
that we may not only know your will, but do your will. Oh, Lord, help us, because unless you do the work, we labor in vain. Hear our prayer, O God, in Jesus' name, amen.